Uh, Emily and I are very glad to be able to join you. Uh, although our churches are connected, this is my first time ever being here. Uh, but I've met people from your congregation before, received valuable rabbit sitting from members of your congregation before, so it's wonderful to finally get to be here with you and bring God's word today. Um, let's uh, turn to our passage in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 43. This is a part of Isaiah where it's hard to know where to put the divisions, so we're going to start in the middle of the chapter and read into the beginning of the next chapter. We're going to start at Isaiah 43, verse 14, and go all the way to 44, 5. Let's uh, hear this reading of God's word. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now, hear, O Jacob my servant, Israel whom I have chosen, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon it. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that as we study this scripture today, we would hear you speak by your spirit, hear what you have to say to each of us. We pray that you would apply this word to our hearts 
and help us to see Christ more clearly in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're very online, like I am, you may know that the website Twitter has been going through a rough time recently. And just recently, their great rival company, Meta, they own Facebook, has launched an alternative called Threads. So there's a battle between these two websites. But one of the concerns people have about this new website called Threads is if they decide they don't like it, will they be able to delete it later without taking down their entire Instagram account? This is a paradox of the digital age, isn't it? On the one hand, it's easier to erase our data than it ever has been before. It's just a magnet that flips a couple bits. But on the other hand, can you ever really erase your data? Is it not being kept and stored by companies somewhere? Can it not be recovered by forensic researchers, even after you think you've deleted it, if they get your hard drive? My wife works as an antitrust attorney, and if you have no idea what that means, she always explains it to me as her job is to read people's emails. Read the emails of people who work at companies once the government has asked for it to be sent to them and to see if they've been doing anything wrong. And it turns out that even if you tried to delete the email, sometimes the email is still saved, only now it tells the government you tried to delete it, and they can look at it even more closely. The internet never forgets, and it seems that our data never goes away. Well, in our passage today, God promises what seems so elusive to us, that he will wipe away his people's transgression, so that their transgressions won't be remembered anymore. As we look at this passage I want us to see three points today. Number one, God is doing something new. God is doing something new. Number two, God is the one who forgives. And number three, God pours out his spirit. So we're going to see God is doing something new, God is the one who forgives, and God pours out his spirit. Okay, first point, God is doing something new. Let me set some context for this passage for you today. Um, way back in the Exodus, God had brought his people out of the land of Egypt. Children, do any of you know which prophet God sent to bring his people out of Egypt? If you're saying Moses, oh, <laughs> Moses, yeah, Moses. So Moses, and maybe you remember the story, right? Moses parts the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea through Moses when the chariots of Pharaoh are bearing down on the Israelites, and he brings them across the other side. And then he cares for them in the wilderness. He sends them the manna so that they can eat and gives them water so that they can drink. And he settles them in this land that he's promised to give them. But over the course of Israel's history, what happens? They continually sin against him. Uh, they worship other gods. They oppress the poor. They even sacrifice some of their children. God sends them prophets to call them back to him. And for a while, that even works sometimes. Uh, but it never lasts. 
Isaiah was one of these prophets. Um, But in the end, despite the work of Isaiah and other prophets, God brings the Babylonians in judgment on Jerusalem. They destroy the temple, and the leaders of the people are exiled to Babylon. Okay, so it's to these exiles in Babylon that Isaiah is prophesying. Even though Isaiah lives about more than a century before they do, he prophesies ahead of time what's going to happen to them. And what is it that Isaiah saw? Well, he sees this new hope on the other side of exile. You know, our passage today is part of 40 through 48 of Isaiah, which is really one long speech. It's really hard to know where to divide it. And what does that speech start with? Isaiah 41. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And this is where we have to put ourselves if we want to understand what those words would have meant to that audience. Imagine experiencing the trauma of being removed from your land. Your king is in chains. Your temple, the way that you connect with your God, has been raised to the grounds. Your people reduced to servitude to the mighty Babylonians. And it's into this despair and darkness that Isaiah's prophecy speaks. And it's a word of comfort and hope. God has not given up on his people. At the same time, this word of comfort also comes with a challenge to hold fast to the Lord. Exile was a place of extreme temptation to worship other gods. In Babylon, Babylon, the people, they would have been introduced to a whole new set of gods. Marduk, Shamash, Ishtar, Ninmach, Nabu, Sin, just to name a few. Looking at the might and splendor of Babylon, it probably would have been tempting for them to think, you know, maybe these gods are the really powerful ones rather than the Lord. But the Lord was going to prove that he was the real God. He was raising up Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, to conquer Babylon and humble its power. And none of the other so-called gods predicted that, nor were they able to do anything about it. Now, this humbling of Babylon was going to be good news for God's people. In verse 14 of our passage, uh, the Lord says he's going to bring down Babylon and the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is just another name for the Babylonians at this time. The verse is actually a little difficult in Hebrew, but the reference to boats, it might be a reference to this jewel-bedazzled boat that Nebuchadnezzar made for the gods Marduk and Nabu to ride ride around in. Um, Alternatively, it might refer to the fact that Babylon's on the Euphrates near the Persian Gulf, which means if things go badly, you can always just try to hop in your boats and escape across the sea. Actually, the Babylon king Merodach-Baladan in Isaiah's day did this, fleeing from the Assyrians, carrying his helpless gods with him in the boat as he ran away to Turtle Island. Either way, the main point of verse 14 is that the Lord is going to do this humbling of Babylon for Israel's sake. In the following verses, he refers back to the time of Moses and the Exodus, when he made a way through the Red Sea and destroyed the chariots of Pharaoh. And the point is that he's going to do this again. God is going to accomplish a second Exodus. This time it's the power of Babylon that's going to be humbled rather than the power of Egypt. All of these armies that are so mighty are going to sputter out like a damp candle. And with the power of Babylon quenched, 
God is going to bring his people out of Babylon into the wilderness. In verse 19, he says that he will make a way. God's going to provide for his people in the wilderness in a miraculous fashion. Rivers will run across the parched sand, and all the thirsty animals will come to drink and honor God for his provision. In in verse 21, the Lord reminds his people that he created them to declare his praise. It's almost like the jackals and the ostriches are here to remind people of their purpose. They're coming to praise God together with the people for his miraculous provision of water. And so I was reading this passage this week, I thought, what would church be like this morning if we had ostriches and jackals here too? Kids, maybe uh, if you're uh, with your parents' permission, you can look up on YouTube today, what does an ostrich sound like? And what does a jackal sound like? I mean, just imagine the ostriches hooting and flapping and the jackals howling. Even the animals are grateful that God gives them water. The key verse for all of this is verse 18. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Maybe that seems like a strange thing for you to hear. Usually the Bible is telling us we're supposed to remember things. What, why is God telling them not to remember? I think the key to getting this verse is to understand a literary connection that Isaiah is making back to Deuteronomy 32. Actually, all through Isaiah 40 through 48, Deuteronomy 32 is coming up all the time. One of the ways we know this, maybe you notice this name Jeshurun in 44 verse 2. That's a name for Israel that's only used here in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy 32 and 33. And if you went through and looked at various rare words in Hebrew, you'd notice all of these connections being made back. Okay, so what's the point of that? What is Deuteronomy 32? Well, it's a passage that's all about remembering. It's this song that Moses teaches to the people before he dies. Uh, And Deuteronomy 32.7 says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. This is a song that was supposed to be passed down from generation to generation to help Israel remember something. And what what are they supposed to remember? Well, there's a lot of great stuff there about who God is and how God chooses them as, as a people and how he provides for them in the wilderness, but the big central point of Deuteronomy 32 is about the people's sin. It rehearses how they sinned against God by worshiping idols. It reminds the people of God's previous judgment for their sin, as well as his compassion after that judgment. And if you actually look, when Moses is introducing the song in the previous chapter, the Lord tells Moses that the song is going to be a witness for him against the people of Israel, because God knows that once they get to the promised land, once they get comfortable and wealthy, they're going to forget about him, and they're going to turn aside from his law, and they're going to break the covenant. So now imagine hearing that song in exile. What must that have been like for the people? Every time they remembered the song, it witnessed against them. God had taken them out into the wilderness to make him into his people with Moses, and he cared and watched over them, but they had tested the relationship with idolatry again and again and again. And just as the song had warned, God had punished them for their sin. 
But now, the word of the Lord through Isaiah says, stop remembering. Stop singing that old song. It's no longer time for the former words of Deuteronomy 32. It's no longer time to mull and obsess over your past sin and the consequences that it's brought because God is going to do something new. He's going to take them out of Babylon, back into the wilderness, and reconstitute his relationship with them. He's going to break the pattern of sin and judgment that's been ruining their relationship with him. So that's the first point. God is doing something new. Second point, God is the one who forgives. You know, there's a lot of names for God in this passage. Maybe you're noticing that as we read through. God is your Redeemer, your Holy One, your King, the Creator of Israel, who formed you for myself. If I unpacked all of these sermons, I think this, all of these names, I think this sermon would probably go on too long. Uh, a guest preacher has to know his place, after all. I will say, please notice the way that all of these names are relational right? Um, they're all either connected to Israel or you. God is, is taking everything he is and connecting it to them. But there, there's one description in particular that stands out in this passage and is emphasized. God is the one who forgives sins. Verse 25, I, I am he who blot out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The imagery is of wiping something away. And indeed, this is how you would erase something that you'd written uh, on a piece of parchment or papyrus at this time, wiping it out. And the passage says that God does it for his own sake. And that's a way of saying that this forgiveness is based solely on God's initiative. It's not based on anything they do. It's something that God does purely out of his own grace. Um, And so we see that the reason that he told them not to remember the former things previously is that God is committed to not remembering the former things either. He says that he will not remember their sins. But this beautiful description of God's forgiveness is, is phrased in a way that suggests a problem. This insistence, I, I am he, emphasizing that God is the one who provides forgiveness suggests that the people have been looking elsewhere for forgiveness. And that's what the previous verses suggest too, isn't it? Verse 22, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you've been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I haven't burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins." You have wearied me with your iniquities. I want you to imagine for a moment what it would be like to live in a polytheistic society. And that means a society where people believe in multiple gods, actually a lot of gods. Now imagine that something bad happens to you. Well, maybe you made a god angry. But which one? Which God are you supposed to go and apologize to? Certainly lots of different gods and goddesses advertise themselves as compassionate. Marduk was often called the merciful Marduk. 
Ninmach styled herself as the Merciful Mother. A hymn to the goddess Ishtar gives this cautionary tale of a man who made her angry. And it goes on to say, No one but she can become enraged, relent, have mercy. No one but she can punish, take pity, forgive. Evidently, some of the people in Israel had bought into this propaganda and taken their sacrifices to go after these other gods. But now God calls them back to the only source of true forgiveness. The next few verses present another alternative. Instead of accepting God's forgiveness, maybe there's the option of arguing with him that we are in the right instead. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. The possibility here is that someone might say, don't forget my sins. Let's bring it all up. I'm in the right. God gives them the option of bringing their case and trying to prove their innocence before the divine court. But, but I don't know. If I was your lawyer and there was a deal on the table for a complete pardon, or we could go to court against God, I think I know which one I would pick. But what would happen if they did go to court? Well, the next couple verses bring up the past again. Your first father sinned. This is probably not a reference to Adam's original sin, different from what Paul has to say in uh, Romans or Corinthians. It's probably not even a reference to Abraham, but rather to Jacob. Because if you notice in this passage, it often uses the name Jacob, their last common ancestor, as a name for the people. We might remember Jacob's deception and deceit, how he swindled his brother out of the birthright. Uh, Indeed, the name Jacob itself sounds like words for trickery and deceit. And after God had wrestled Jacob to a standstill, he gave him a new name. What was that new name? Israel. But the sinful patterns of the old Jacob still have this tendency to show up in his descendants. And even their leaders, their mediators, proved disastrously sinful again and again in their history. And then we have verse 28, which is a little bit difficult grammatically. Um, In the context of what God's saying, it doesn't make a lot of sense for it to be future, the way the ESV translates it. I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. Um, It could be past, as many of the ancient translations interpret it, a reference to the judgment of the exile. It might also, though, be a hypothetical result of this thought experiment. What would probably happen if God dealt with Israel in his courtroom according to their just deserts? If Israel tries to argue her case before God on her own merits, the result would be, I would end up profaning the princes of the sanctuary and delivering Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Even Israel's priests the princes of the sanctuary referenced here, are not fit to stand in God's presence on the basis of their own merits. Maybe it's a little strange that God's bringing up the past, right? Didn't he just say that he wasn't going to do it, that he wasn't going to remember it? But, But I think the point here is that the people are hesitant to accept this offer of forgiveness. And here, God's trying to shut down the self-justifying option, the option of trying to do without God's forgiveness. He's calling themselves to cast themselves, calling them to cast themselves upon his mercy and forgiveness. 
In any case, I don't think this reference to their past sin is actually where this section is supposed to end. I think we're supposed to read into chapter 44, which contrasts it with, but now. Israel's sordid past is in the past, and God is moving forwards. But before we move forwards to our last point, let's stop a minute and apply uh, apply this point to ourselves. Where are you looking for forgiveness? Where are you looking for forgiveness? You know, as I've been working through my dissertation on this passage, I've been reading everything I can about nothingness, because Isaiah uses the word nothing a lot. Uh, And, you know, that includes across the board. And it's included a lot of, like, modern atheistic philosophers. And one of the things that I found interesting as I've read many of them is the reference to this, this feeling of alienation that it seems all human beings have. This, this feeling that there's some sort of broken relationship, some sort of thing se- that we're separating us that needs to be reconciled. And because they're atheistic philosophers, they always assure me that it has nothing to do with God. Um, but what could it be? Well, th- maybe it shows up in society. You know, we're alienated from each other, different classes, different identities, and we're, maybe we're waiting for some revolutionary moment when we'll all be seen for what we are. Uh, maybe it's with nature. Maybe technology has separated us from nature, and we need to, to, to be reunited with, with, with Mother Earth. Uh, maybe it's in our own psychology. We're, we're split from ourselves, and we have these sorts of uh, alienation from parts of who we are or the roles we play in society, and we need to be like psychologically reintegrated through uh, psychoanalysis or some kind of therapy. I'm not against social reform or caring for the earth or good counseling, but if the Bible is true, then it's not going to solve our fundamental problem. We're always going to feel that something needs to be reconciled. And here, I don't just want to critique the world outside the church either, because after all, Isaiah is talking to God's own people, not the Gentiles. And yet God's own people have sought out these other options for forgiveness and reconciliation as well. So where are you looking for forgiveness and reconciliation in your life? Is it a relationship, perhaps? And you think, if I could just get this relationship to work with the parents, maybe a significant other or a spouse or a child. If that relationship was fixed, then I could really be happy. Maybe it's some kind of status. If I can hit the right career goal, if I could be recognized as a good employee, a good friend, a good husband or wife, father or mother, then I could finally make up for this emptiness I feel inside. All of these things can be problems we need to work on, but our fundamental relationship problem is with God. And if we find that we aren't engaging in our relationships with each other with the mercy and love of Christ, if that's ever challenging for you, it might be because we're looking for something there in those relationships that they were never designed to give us. It could be that we need to deal with issues in our more fundamental relationship with God that we need to spend more time just basking in his forgiveness and mercy given to us in Christ. And here's a second question about this forgiveness. 
are you able to accept it? Or is there part of you that keeps insisting that you have to earn it? That you need to take God to court and prove your righteousness? What are the areas of your life where you're most tempted to measure your fundamental worth by your performance? Is it maybe even the same places where you're having relationship problems that we we, we asked about before? Saving ourselves by our own performances is not going to end any better for us than it did for Israel, whose best leaders were still disqualified before God. In this passage, God is calling you and me to put down our legal briefs, to let go of our defenses, and simply trust in God's mercy. So that's our second point. God is the one who forgives. Third point. God pours out his spirit. If you think about it, God's people not coming to him for forgiveness is a pretty big problem, isn't it? I mean, to put it in our terms, imagine if Jesus died on the cross and nobody cared. It was just another Friday. What good does it do for God to be merciful if nobody comes to him for mercy in the first place? What good are God's mighty acts and salvation if the human heart is so calloused that it isn't even affected? But this is precisely what is addressed by the end of this oracle at the beginning of chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. First of all, the Lord emphasizes that Jacob is his chosen servant. God's election, his choice, will not be defeated. He has made them, created them. Remember, God creates from nothing. He doesn't need any starting materials to work with. And uh, he's even formed them from the womb. God's creative power is compared to childbirth. I think that's probably also a Deuteronomy 32 reference, because in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord calls himself the rock who gave birth to you. Here we should think about Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3 about how if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to be born again by the Spirit's power. That's how radical it is. But the good news is, God does have that power. In 44 verse 2, God reminds them that he knows how to help them, and so he tells them, do not be afraid. So, what is God going to do? Well, he's going to pour out streams of water on a parched and thirsty land. And here, the parched land is the people themselves. It's the desert of their spiritually dead hearts. They haven't been able to benefit from God's forgiveness because until now, they haven't even had enough spiritual life to come to God and ask for it. But now, God is going to pour out his Spirit upon them. And this is going to lead to spiritual growth. Verse 4, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. They're going to flourish like a tree that's planted by streams of water. Echoes here of the righteous man in Psalm 1. They're going to thrive and grow because they're going to receive life and strength from God's own Spirit. 
And this is going to finally correct the sin of going after other gods. They're going to embrace the Lord as the one to whom they belong. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. This same prophecy of the giving of the Holy Spirit shows up in other Old Testament prophets. Joel 2 talks about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. Ezekiel talks about this in Ezekiel 36. There he he joins the giving of the Spirit with sprinkled water cleansing from the impurity of idols, much like the forgiveness offered in this passage. He then goes on to talk about the people's heart of stone being replaced with the heart of flesh and the Spirit being put within them to move them to obey God. And although the prophet Jeremiah doesn't mention the Spirit explicitly, in much the same terms in chapter 31, he too talks about how God is going to write his law on the people's hearts. And then he goes on to say, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So the Old Testament prophets all agree that they're looking forward to a future day when God's going to pour out his spirit on his people. And this is closely connected with an unparalleled forgiveness of sins. When did this happen? Well, we could start by looking at the return from exile that happened after God humbled Babylon. After King Cyrus took over the Babylonian Empire, he allowed the exiled people to return to the land. Maybe you remember some of the names of the leaders who brought them back, Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's true that with this return, there came this new determination to worship God instead of idols, and a new determination and focus on obeying God's law. But those who lived in the restored province of Judah, they recognized that what they were seeing around them was not the full reality of the promises God had given them through the prophets. They still looked forward to their complete fulfillment. And of course, that fulfillment only arrived with Jesus. It's through Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law on our behalf and sacrifice in our place that the full forgiveness of God was made known. And it's only through the Spirit that the resurrected Jesus sent that was poured out on the church at Pentecost that Christ's work was fully applied to the church. So what does it look like, living now after the fulfillment of this prophecy, to recognize the necessity of the Spirit's work in our hearts? Well, I really love the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter on good works. It's very, very balanced and a lot of wealth in there. Let me read just one section of it. Believers' ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ, and that they may be enabled thereunto, besides the graces they have already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of his good pleasure. Yet are they not hereupon to grow negligent, as if they were not bound to perform any duty unless upon a special motion of the Spirit, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. Okay, there's a lot in there. not going to discuss it fully. Let me pull out a couple of strands. First of all, starting from the end, this doesn't make us puppets. It's not that God just bypasses our, our, our will and intellect, who we are. Um, and I think that this picture of water 
and plant growth communicates this in a wonderful way. Uh, these plants, our hearts unfold like plants in a natural organic way through the Spirit's influence, and yet we need that life-giving water at every step. But at the same time, I think this is something we can slip into, that we talk about the Holy Spirit sort of as an, an animate force, like, a, like an, a battery pack, maybe. And it's up to us if we're going to, we have the energy there, but it's up to us whether we're going to plug into the battery pack and get the energy. What that would miss is that the Spirit's relationship is personal and active. It's a relationship. I really like this point the Confession makes, that besides the graces they've already received, every good work requires an actual influence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means I never just, like, bank up enough grace energy that I can then kind of, like, go on my own for an hour, a day, a week before I need the Holy Spirit again. No, I need the Holy Spirit every time. It's an ongoing relationship. And you see, this is good news for you if you know the struggle to obey God in your heart, the struggle to accept God's forgiveness and put aside attempts to earn your salvation. God is the one who is at work in you by His Spirit to change your heart so that you can know that you belong to Him. In our passage today, we learn that with the Spirit in their hearts, God's people are able to say, I am the Lord's, to write the Lord's. I belong to the Lord on their hands. Paul says something similar. He says the Spirit enables us to call God Abba, Father, to know that we are God's adopted little, little children because Jesus is our big brother. That's something the Spirit enables us to do. This is the source of our hope. It's not even fundamentally about our ability to accept God's forgiveness, but it's God's ability to move us to know that we belong to him as his little children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, especially when many of us at many times feel spiritually dry, like a desert, that our hope is not in ourselves, but our hope is in the work you do in our hearts. We pray that you would, today and tomorrow and this whole week, this whole summer, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, pour fresh spiritual water into our hearts, that the word we've heard here today would move us again to depend on your mercy and forgiveness. And we thank you that you are at work by your Spirit. We place all our trust.